Thanks to Parno for those great words. It's uh, wonderful to be with you to uh, worship. Um, I think we have a great time, and you know we're going to look into the Word, and that is worship too. In fact, as I'll make the case in a few minutes, all of life is worship. It's not like we worship here and we do something else over there. All of life is worship. And as you can see, we're going to talk about work and depending on God in work and work as worship. Now, I don't know how you look at yourself when you look in the mirror, but we are all workers. Doesn't mean you work necessarily for a paycheck, although many of us do. We all have things to do in life. And that's part of worship as well. So let me pray and then we'll look into God's Word. So Father, as we continue to worship by looking into your, his word, into your Word, we thank you for the time we've been able to sing. Father, we've talked about you as holy, set apart, sanctified. We talked about you as Alpha and Omega. We talked about you as a, a bulwark a rock, a fortress, a foundation. And then we said, Father, we want to give our lives to you. We want to give our hearts to you. And so I pray that in this hour, and more importantly in life, the people within the hearing of my voice, that we don't give half our heart to you. Not 90%, not 99%, not 99.9%, but all of who we are to you. Help us to consecrate our lives, our very lives, as we look into the subject of work. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Psalm 127. We're going to focus on the first two verses. Let me read them. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. This is God's Word. So as you step back, I would argue, perhaps some of you will agree, that many people go through life kind of miserable, absent the joy, the contentment that God intends for each of us, including many of faith. We run around frenetically, getting our to-do list done, keeping busy with our insane schedules, going from here to there, and we feel anxious, we feel pressure not enjoying the fruits of our labor, despite perhaps some success in that labor. We don't seem to be able to rest or to be content. And that's what these verses are about. Let me read them again. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stands awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. May I read it in using the message translation? If God doesn't build the house, the builders only build shacks. 
If God doesn't guard the city, the night watchman might as well nap. It's useless to rise early and go to bed late and work your worried fingers to the bone. Don't you know that he enjoys giving rest to those he loves? I'd like to touch on four things. Very briefly, what this verse is not saying. Then I will, it may sound like a digression, but I think it's supportive of these verses. I want to talk about the importance, the goodness, the goodness and the dignity of work. How God gave us work. How God is a worker. Number three, the broken purpose of work. How did we mess it up? And what are the thorns and the thistles due to our work? And then we'll come back to the two verses directly and ask what are these verses actually saying and what should we do about it? So first, what these verses are not saying. I would submit that they're not saying, as you read down this, that if you don't trust in God, you can't be successful. We all probably know a bunch of people who go hard at it. They're qualified, they do well, they work their tails off. And in some sense, they succeed. And you know what? We wonder. So this passage isn't saying that if you don't depend on God, you can't build a house. That is, you can't be successful. Many of those same people have relative peace for long periods of time. So it's not true that if you don't trust God, you can't accomplish great things. That's not what this is saying. Number two, the text is not saying that hard work is not required. One reading of this, you might think, trust God and everything's going to be fine. Trust God and stay in bed and he'll take care of things. It's not what it's saying. This text assumes that we're working hard. And at times in life, we might even be burning the candle at both ends. The text is also not saying that if you trust God, everything will work out fine. It doesn't say trust God and you're going to have a great career, a great family, a great house. That's not what it says. So we'll come back and examine what it does say in a few minutes. And to do that, I want to first talk about the importance, the goodness, and the dignity of work. Do you know that the average human being spends about two-thirds of their time at work? We spend more time working, wherever it is that you work, studying in a lab, in an office, at home, than anything else that we do. And I can't imagine a God who is good not caring about the thing we spend most of our time on. Of course he cares. He cares deeply. In fact, God put work in paradise before the fall. Work in its original intent was perfect. And it's interesting when you read the Bible and you get to the last book of the Bible, we read again how paradise restored contains work. So don't think you're going to escape work. In many religions, work is evil. Think back to Pandora's box. You know, keep the lid on. Remember Pandora's box? And when the lid comes off, all kinds of things come out, and they're all bad. One of the things that comes out is work. 
Work is viewed by many as evil. Work is demeaning. So what does God say about work? First of all, he shows what he thinks about work by example. In Genesis, God is working. Most vividly in chapter 1 in creation. As we said before the fall, work was involved, so it was part of the perfect life God intended. We'll come back to Genesis 1 and 2 in a few minutes. Even our Lord, Jesus Christ, came into this world. He didn't spend most of his time teaching and preaching and healing the poor, uh, healing the sick and feeding the poor. He, that's not what he, he only spent a short amount of time, arguably three years on that. What did he spend most of his time doing? He was a carpenter. He was a worker. And some would argue he didn't come as an aristocrat or a king. He came as a menial worker. I think there's some lessons there. God is dignifying work. All kinds of work. All kinds of work for his creation. So we ought to think about the person who sweeps the floor as doing God-honoring work. And in your home, that might be you. If we have truly a Christian and godly understanding of work, all work, and therefore all workers, are important. If you have that understanding, it quickly eliminates class snobbery, does it not? You know, the elevation of certain people, certain professions, the famous, the rich, the ones that make a difference. Wow, are they way up there? Yes, they are, but so is the street cleaner. We are not to look down on any worker. Because that worker and the work that that person's doing is ordained by God. If we're doing God's work well, we're pleasing God. So no matter how we work, no matter what job we have, how do we do our work in a consistently Christian way? The answer is simple. We do it well. I often wonder and observe people around me, some of them who get an A if they were being graded at work, and some who get a C. Whose life do I care to emulate? Probably the A worker and not the C worker. And there's a lesson there for all of us. If we want people to see what motivates us, what makes us tick, the God inside us, we need to be A workers, not C workers. We serve God by doing our job well, no matter what the task and most people in the Bible were not seminary professors. They were not pastors. They were not Bible study leaders. They were, quote, ordinary workers like you and me. Think about it. Joseph, Esther, Daniel. Ordinary people in ordinary jobs. They did their work really well. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I was consciously or unconsciously taught there were hierarchies of work. You know, way at the top was the missionary. You know, they had to make all kinds of sacrifices because they had to leave the country that they were in and just sacrifice everything, learn a new language. Just below it, the pastors. I mean, the reason they're just below is they don't have to leave the country. They can stay in the country. A little bit easier. 
Then there were the helps professions, right? Doctors, nurses, teachers, people who helped other people. And then down the bottom of the list, depending on the environment, were the greedy business people, the dishonest lawyers, and the crooked politicians. Have you grown up with an understanding of the hierarchy of work like that? That is a lie from the pit of hell. We are all ordained in our work. Our work is holy. We are called to our work, whatever that work is over a period of time. There is no hierarchy of work in God's economy. So as promised or threatened, let's go back to Genesis 1 and make some observations. In the beginning, God, fill in the blank, created. Can I say, in the beginning, God worked. And what did he do after each day? He stepped back and said, I worked today, and wow, that was good. Right? Work is good. The second chapter of Genesis goes on, and God works not only to create, but also to care for his creation. He began to pass the baton, if you will, to you and me. He commissions us to be workers, to take care of the creation watering, cultivating the ground, giving food to all he has made, giving help to all who suffer, caring for the needs of every living thing. God says in Genesis 1, at the end, fill the earth and subdue it. We're to work. We're to sustain and improve his creation after the fall. Work it and keep it. So the fact is, God put work in paradise is surprising to a lot of people. Because work think, a lot of people think work is a curse. It is not. Work is far more than where I go Monday morning. Work is far more than my place of evangelism. Work is far more than I go to get a paycheck to put food on the table. Yes, it may be some of those things, but don't cheat your work. If that's all it was, why would God have us spend two-thirds of our time doing it? Work is an act of worship. It's a holy calling. Our work has been designed by God to be an act of worship, and that's often missed in this frenetic pace of too often compartmentalized lives. Do you look at Sunday different from Monday? in the sense of work? I hope not. I mean, I think we all know people who can't wait for Friday because the weekend's right around the corner. Now, there's nothing wrong with enjoying your weekend. Don't get me wrong. But if you're living Monday morning to get the Friday afternoon, wow, are you missing God's best for you? I can't wait for vacation. Nothing wrong with a vacation, but my goodness, that should be our motivation. God doesn't have us spend 48 weeks a year on vacation. He's have us spend 48 weeks a year working. One of my favorite composers as a musician is Johann Sebastian Bach. If you know anything about this great man of God, everything he wrote, he put at the bottom, SDG, Solo Deo Gloria, to the glory of God. And that wasn't just the anthems he wrote for Sunday morning or the cantatas that he wrote. That was everything he wrote, even his secular pieces, S-D-G. 
you think about SDG in some way, shape, or form in everything you do? The paper you write, the project you complete, the deal you make? SDG. To God be the glory. That's what works to be. The goodness of work. Number three, the brokenness of work. Work had good intentions until the fall. Life had good intentions to the fall. Let's blame Adam and Eve for a minute or two, should we? My favorite and sad representation of what I'm talking about is the Tower of Babel. People got together to work. They worked hard to build that tower. Do you remember? What were they trying to do? It says it right in the, in the, in the Scripture. To make a name for themselves. They were out for me, for us. How many of us work for status, for power, for identity? You know, because I'm good, I'm talented, I work hard, I'm successful, I'm well-known. Now I can make a name for myself. What a dead-end street is that? The result in the case of the Tower of Babel, of course, was fragmentation of nations, of ethnic groups, and, of course, languages because of the brokenness of work. Given that God put work in paradise at the beginning and will put work in paradise restored at the end, we need to think about work in that context. The thorns and the thistles in work, making work harder, came with the fall. Are you working to make a name for yourself? Or are you working to please God? I might broaden it. Are you living life for yourself? Or are you living life to please God? Remember what I prayed? That we would give not 50, not 99, not 99.9% of ourselves to God, but 100%. We want our work to be an offering to God and about serving His people. The quality of our work is not the measure of our life. Yes, we all need deep assurance that we're valuable and we're worthwhile. And God provides that in a very clear way, which I'll talk about at the end and it won't be any surprise to you. You know, because we set up idols in our hearts, we recognize that making an image of something can get us in a lot of trouble. God says, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Notice what God says in that. He's saying, either I am your God or something else is. We all have a God. Is it the true God? Are we letting other things get in the way? And sometimes it's work. I wrote the overworked careerist. We have any overworked careerists in the room? Tries desperately to derive meaning and value from the work itself. But he or she forgets that only God can infuse not just work, but the whole of our lives with dignity and purpose. A lot of us would save ourselves a lot of trouble in life if we really appropriated that to how we live. This speaker included. Let me provide testimony of an event in my life when I lost my job and the lessons that God had to teach me. May I read a testimony? 
I am privileged to give testimony to God's faithfulness and direction in my work life. I have been blessed by a wonderful and challenging career in the investment management business for almost 40 years with early opportunities to be a faithful but quiet witness, mostly by deed in the hallways and corridors of largely God-indifferent firms. Many of you work for God in different firms with mostly God and different employees. God has been faithful to provide career advancement opportunities over many years with fame and fortune along the way. Through a variety of circumstances and conscious decisions, in the last 15 years, I've become more visible and vocal about my faith. With that came mainly abundant blessings and discovery, including identifying other believers in the workplace. The testimony I want to share is a bump in the career road in 2012, a year I'd prefer not to repeat, but a year I wouldn't trade for anything else. In May of 2012, I lost my job. Now, many of you lost jobs. Many of you lost far worse than jobs. But in the context of a work study, I want to give testimony to the pain I endured in that brief period. I lost my job ostensibly for sharing my faith. Given the persecution of Christians that is taking place around many parts of the world, it's almost petty for me even to use the word. And yet, in the United States, it's indicative of a culture that is increasingly pagan and in general slowly denying by omission and even repudiation God at every turn. The loss hit me hard. You see, I had unknowingly transferred some of my identity to my work. I was a senior muckety-muck at the firm I was working for, and now I didn't have the job, so I'm lost. Who am I? I'm a child of of God, and I need to reestablish an understanding of the richness of that and God's purpose. I probably for the first time in my life also realized I needed to relinquish control. A great spiritual lesson for anybody who's type A in the room. There were many verses that came to my mind. You know some of them. Jeremiah 29, for I know the plans I have for you, etc. Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's workmanship. Psalm 139, I I love it. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I lie down and when I sit up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. These truths were clear in my head, but my heart was not buying it. You've probably heard that the distance between the head and the heart is sometimes the longest 12 inches in the world. That's what I was experiencing. You see, work career, position, had become an idol. I came to recognize that trusting anything to deliver this control, the security, the significance, the satisfaction, and frankly, the beauty that only the one true God, Jehovah, can give is a dead-end alley. For many of us, being productive and doing becomes an attempt at self-redemption. That is, through our work, as worthwhile as our work may be, we should not build our primary worth, security, and meaning. That elevated set of characteristics belongs to one who can truly satisfy. To paraphrase Tim Keller, quote, we all have treasures, the thing we cherish, delight in, and adore above other things. To understand these idols is to understand the hierarchy of our souls and the foundation of our personalities. Even Jesus said it, for where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. 
You see, because we set up idols in our hearts, we recognize that making an image of something can take something that's good into the ultimate thing and get in the way of depending on God. That's where I was. The time between gave me a gut-wrenching opportunity to deal with clarification of God's calling in my life. And I made it to the other side with the help of uh, lots of prayers, five gentlemen, friends that I just identified as a, a group for me, a board of directors for that period in life, if you will. They challenged me. They prayed for me. They helped me see God's calling in my life, and I'm forever grateful to them and to God. I wish I had time to give you the list of things how God has redeemed. People told me it might be till eternity. Do you understand why that happened? You know, within 18 months, I had a list of 10 things that God had provided that wouldn't have happened if I were still doing the thing over here. We need to have impeccable reputations for finances, caring, and commitments to others in the workplace. These are the things I purpose to do. We need to have demonstrated consistent generosity with time and money. We especially need to be calm and poised in the face of difficulty or failure. That's when we who name the name of Jesus are going to be watched most closely. And finally, number four, we need to be identified as Christians in our workplaces, not just blending in. Yeah, at the same time, we need to respect those who believe differently and value them equally in the marketplace. I'm thankful to God for safely bringing me from one mountain through a valley to another mountain. So that's one man's testimony. Work, depending on God. So, finally, what are these verses saying? Go back to the passage. I want to pose and try to answer three questions. What is the main principle at stake in this psalm? Two, how do we live out this principle in everyday life? And number three, how does this principle relate to the gospel? What's the main principle of the psalm? May I read it again? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. We can build houses, we can watch over cities, we can work hard at our career. Many of those things are thought of as secular things. But as I've tried to argue earlier and am again now, the reality is all work is sacred. Your work, academic study, and an office at home, out on the streets, whatever it is that you do is to be God's work and under His authority. All work is part of Genesis 2. Man will rule the earth, i.e. work, under the authority of God, under the Lordship of Christ. We labor to try to put a piece of this broken world back together. That's what our work is doing. And if we attempt that without depending on God, it will ultimately be in vain. Did you see how, the word, how many times the word vain shows up in those two verses? Vain does not mean you don't accomplish things. Just main, vain means your accomplishments can be useless. If you're doing work, as we said earlier, even if you do it well but not dependent on God, there's something missing. Something falls short in our work. There's a piece of the world that will be in vain. The fruit of the work will not 
fully satisfy, will not fully fulfill. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. If you do anything, work included, without depending on God, the peace, the rest, will be somewhat elusive. Instead, work can be exhausting, frustrating, incomplete, and not fully satisfying. So it says, you will eat the bread of anxious toil. Is that what you desire to do when you go to work? Eat the bread of anxious toil? I don't think so. We work for his glory. For he gives his beloved sleep. What does sleep mean in this context? Rest, satisfaction, fulfillment, peace, contentment. That's what this text is saying. And I think that's a pretty serious problem for most Christians. A lot of us try to do life. Therefore, a lot of us try to do work under all strength and power, day by day by day. No wonder we are frenetic and joyless and restless. Think about someone who has a career. Maybe that's you. Do you have the power to convince somebody to hire you? Do you get to pick your boss? Can you control your company? Can you control the competitors to your company? And if you're a follower of Jesus, who knows what they'll say about you? We need to depend on God for our work Indeed, for our very lives. I would argue most of us aren't big enough or powerful enough to carry these things on our own. When we try to take it on our shoulders, the consequences are, as this scripture says, anxiety, restlessness, unsettled feelings. And we forfeit the blessing that God intends for us and for all his children as his beloved. And when we depend on God, he promises, as this passage says, Sleep, peace, rest, satisfaction, joy. This is the essence of the psalm. That's the meaning of the psalm. So with that in view, how do we live according to this principle? What's your prayer life like for your work? I would argue there's probably a pretty high correlation between prayer for work and satisfaction and joy in work. Do you pray each day for, your, for what's going to happen that day? Do you pray for your boss? Do you pray for your coworkers? Do you pray for, pray for the company you work for? Do you pray for yourself and how you're going to conduct yourself? Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. So when the day ends, I am experiencing peace, joy, contentment. To repeat, Doing all these things does not necessarily mean you're going to be successful. That's not what the psalm says. The problems of work won't go away. But you'll be different in your attitude toward it, in your preparation for it, and the satisfaction you receive. If you depend upon the Lord, these good things can happen. Now, if we work for ourselves... The work can enslave and even destroy us. But if we offer to God, we have healing in our work. You know, Adam and Eve decided they were going to go their own way. And what did God do? He exiled them, did he not? We all can experience that exile if we live away from trusting and depending on God. 
How does this relate to the gospel? I think it has everything to do with the gospel. We know God sends his son to be a worker, as we said earlier. Not only that, our Lord received thorns too. Remember the thorns and thistles of work that come from the fall? Jesus received a crown of thorns that was pounded into his skull. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what he said from the cross. I wrote down, Jesus is experiencing cosmic restlessness because he's taking all of our attitudes and all of our sin and all of our thorns that we deserve from us. And we receive his righteousness and love. We can't get right for God no matter how hard and how successful we work. We just need to trust him. He's already done all the work. In order to become a Christian, we need to depend entirely and totally on God. Now, most of us know that, and I suspect for most of in this room, there's a time when you said, Lord, I depend on you. I trust you for what you did on the cross. Thank you for saving me. Praise God for that moment. But then, we often turn around and say, Lord, thanks for the salvation. Now, the rest of this life I can do on my own. Work, I can take care of that by myself. How foolish. <laughs> I suspect Jesus is looking at us, as it were, saying, if you try to earn your salvation by work of any type, you try to live a good life, try to earn your way to God, you won't make a dent, and you'll be exhausted and restless. Work is the same way. You see, Jesus worked himself to death for us. He took the thorns and when you see him dying on the cross, that should assure you of his love for you. And that's where we receive our worth. Not in our work. Not the act of self-redemption by working harder under our own power. The Lord says, I want you to depend on me. Faithfully work for me. And I will give you joy and satisfaction in your work and in your life. Having said all this, as I begin to conclude, at the end of the day, remember, and we just sang about it, God is holy. And what are we to be? Holy. God is more concerned for our godliness than he is for our giftedness, including at work. He's more concerned about the depth, depth of our maturity than the breadth of what it is that we do, even our ministry. God is more concerned with who you are than what you do. God is more concerned with our character than he is with our career. And he cares deeply about our career, but it's the character. It's how we do what we do, not so much what we do. Let me conclude with a story I read to the folks uh, that were gathered for devotion on Friday evening about two workers Larry and Armand. First, Larry. Larry was in his 30s and quit his job so that he could serve full-time at his church. This is a true, these are true stories. He worked at the church for no pay. He befriended people. He saw potential. He invited people into groups and opportunities to make friends and to contribute. He saw potential in everybody, even the lowest of the low. He had radar for lonely people. He told people what he thought they could become. 
He went out of town to a leadership retreat, was jogging downtown early in the morning, and a bus hit him, and he was killed. His loss was devastating to that fellowship group, as you can imagine, but even they had no idea of his impact. So they had a service for Larry in the chapel of the church. No one had any idea kind of what his background was, didn't seem to have a family. His whole life seemed to be at the church. He had no children, no regular job. Cars came flooding in. The service lasted for three hours. So many people came to file past the casket that the line went out the chapel door for blocks. 800 people stood in line to honor this worker. At the service and at the reception in the halls, one person after another spoke of how his or her life had been touched by Larry, a worker. None of the stories were about Larry's possessions or even his achievements. All of them were about Larry's capacity to love and to serve. What a story. What a dedicated life of work. Man number two, Armand. Larry wasn't known by anybody, but Armand was a famous guy. He was chairman of a Fortune 100 company, a big, successful company, a billionaire industrialist. He was called by U.S. Today as a giant of capitalism. It wasn't until his death that his true story came out. He got his start by laundering money for the Soviet government. Then he hired ghost workers, ghost writers, excuse me, to write fictitious autobiographies of his life. He got more money through a string of broken marriages. He allowed his father to go to prison for a botched abortion that he himself had performed. Isn't that sick? He neglected his only son and hid himself from an illegitimate daughter. He had no friends at his work where he, quote, fired his top executives as if they, they were errand boys. When Armand died, his son didn't attend the funeral. In fact, none of his relatives did. And neither did almost anyone else. His pallbearers were his chauffeur, his nurse, and other personal employees. So one man, Armand, was famous, courted, wealthy, connected, powerful, and in the eyes of the world, an amazing worker. He reached the top of his profession. Larry, faithful, lover of people, honoring God, depending on God. Obviously, the answer to the question, which would you rather be, I hope, is obvious. What are we doing in our work? How are we living for God? Are we depending on Him? Let me say it yet one more way. I like to end many messages I talked about with this concept. We are all going to die. Many of us will have a tombstone or a marker or something. Here lies Bob. 1954-someday, I hope, way into the future. We have no control over that first date. We have little, if any, control over the second date. But that little dash, that little hyphen in the middle, that's God's gift to us. And two-thirds of it we spend working. What are you doing with your hyphen? How are you treating your work life? Where does God fit in? Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you that you are holy, that you are the Alpha and the Omega. 
We thank you that you are a still, small voice, while at the same time you are a mighty, magnificent, fortress God. I thank you, Father, that you created us in your image and that you are a master worker par excellence. Help us to be the same. Help us to want to imitate you, to love you, to love your people because you gave us the gift of work. The thorns and the thistles, Father, help us to manage through them. Work's not easy. But if we depend on you, as your word says, you will give us peace, joy, contentment. I pray that for each one listening, that we might, in our work, honor you in that way. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.